Okay, we're back in Matthew's Gospel uh, for one week anyway. We're looking at uh, chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. The text is there on the next page of the bulletin. Uh, I think next week, so we're, we're taking a little bit of vacation uh, this coming week, so I might uh, go like re-preach another one of the Psalms that we did from three years ago or so. So, um, Anyway, yeah, so we're in Matthew's Gospel. Let me pray, then we'll read the Scripture. <clears throat> Father, you are constantly paying attention to us, and we pray that you'd help us to give our attention to you as we consider your word together this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn? As long as the bridegroom is with them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Well, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, all those books of the Bible that come before the life of Jesus, leading up to, uh, talking about the life of Jesus before it, uh, one of the big metaphors that we find for the relationship that God has with his people is the picture of a bridegroom and his bride. So, um, God refers to himself as the bridegroom. He refers to himself as the husband of his people. And he makes promises to them that are a lot like sort of wedding vows or betrothal vows uh, in, in that culture. Uh, he makes promises to be faithful to his bride, to love his bride, to redeem his bride, his people, for a relationship of mutual, intimate knowing. So uh, we get the, you know, books like the book of Hosea in the prophets or the song of Solomon uh, in the wisdom literature. And we get passages throughout the scriptures and other places like Isaiah talking about God coming to his people as the bridegroom comes to the bride. Uh, The whole story of the Old Testament is the story from one angle of uh, a faithful bridegroom and his repeatedly faithless treacherous, adulterous bride. God always proves himself to be absolutely faithful to his people as their bridegroom, but his people sin, they betray him, um, they reject the intimate relationship that he offers, and they turn to other gods for life. But in his faithfulness, God promised to restore the relationship between him and his people, and so you get passages like this in Hosea chapter 2, where God says, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. A picture of intimate knowledge between a bridegroom and his bride. So anyone uh, who was interested in that, anyone who's interested in a real relationship with God uh, before Jesus came into the world, a real relationship with the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh, they would have been looking forward to this coming day. 
with great anticipation, much like we look forward to a wedding day. So, you know, if you're married, um, uh, you've probably experienced something like this leading up to your wedding. It was a great longing, a great desire, right? A a testing of your patience, maybe even uh, frustration, right? Will the day ever come? When will the wait finally be over? I can hardly stand to wait any longer, and that day will be such a joyful day. It'll, it'll make everything new. But until then, the longing can consume you. Waiting like that is usually not the most pleasant experience itself. Similarly, before the day that the heavenly bridegroom promised to his bride, the time would have been characterized by this waiting and this longing. And so you get songs like we sing at Advent. We're talking about the long-expected Jesus, right? So waiting and longing would have characterized that time, and it would have, it would have felt appropriate to do something like fast from eating food. That, that sort of syncs up with that sense of waiting uh, with desperation and a longing and a desire. Uh, we talked about fasting a few months ago. Jesus talks about it here again. Uh, we won't spend a lot of time looking at the whole idea of fasting this morning, but it will it'd be helpful to say a few brief things about it again, just to refresh your memory. In the Bible, fasting is a spiritual experience. It's a religious practice, right? So something, it's something that has to do explicitly with your relationship with God, fasting. Uh, fasting is something you do when you have something like a hunger for God, a relational hunger for God. It's something you do when you're really feeling his absence, when you're longing desperately to be in his presence. So fasting is appropriate at times of mourning or grieving or longing or desperation. Fasting is appropriate at times when your unfulfilled desire is so strong that that seems almost uh, intolerable, unbearable. Hunger is an unpleasant experience, it's an uncomfortable experience. So hunger is appropriate to describe a deep relational need, a deep spiritual need for God especially. So when you're hungry, when you're hungry, you're waiting for what you need. You don't have what you need right now, you're waiting for it. Right? That's what hunger is. There's an ache, there's a yearning, something's missing, something's incomplete, something's not quite right, and you, it comes to a point where you can't think about anything else. Than what you need. So the way the Bible talks about it, this sort of fasting would have been appropriate for God's people who were waiting for God's presence, longing for the day when the bridegroom would come to his bride, desperate for the day of salvation, the day of his redeeming love. So best case scenario, uh, you've got um, uh, John's disciples here asking this question, why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast, right? Best case scenario, John's disciples and the Pharisees would have made fasting a regular religious practice for for something like this, because they're really desperate for God's presence. But the disciples of Jesus didn't fast. In fact, they're they're here in the middle of a feast. Remember, Jesus and his disciples are at this great feast that Matthew has put on, uh, where Jesus um, was getting uncomfortably comfortable with a lot of sinners. Um, Just having a party together, sharing a good meal together. So they're at a feast. They're not fasting. And the disciples of John come to him saying, why are we fasting, but your disciples are not fasting? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? The Pharisees are asking that question uh, too. Uh, We read about that in the accounts of the other gospel writers. Find Mark 
and Luke uh, saying that this, this question is also generated by the Pharisees. Uh, coming from the Pharisees, uh, we hear a bit more disdain in the question, uh, probably. What's wrong with your disciples? Right? Why are they not doing the, the right spiritual thing here? Um, but coming from the disciples of John, it seems actually it's easier to take it like it's an honest question. <laughs> we think John and his disciples, uh, there's probably a real question for them. So if, if fasting is for a time when our unfulfilled desires are so strong as to be unbearable, when we long for the day the Lord comes to be present with his people, well, why don't the disciples of Jesus observe a fast as a regular part of their spiritual life here? And Jesus says to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? That wouldn't make any sense. Wedding guests aren't mourning in the presence of the, the bridegroom. So Jesus told a lot of parables about what the kingdom of heaven was like. Several times he'd say, you know, kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. And that would make sense to someone who's familiar with all those places in the Old Testament where God refers to himself as the bridegroom and he promises a special day when he comes to his bride to be with her, to catch her up in his love and to renew their relationship. But here's Jesus explicitly referring to himself as the bridegroom. He's the Lord. He's the husband who has made faithful vows to his wife. He's God. In the flesh, come to dwell in the midst of his people, to love them and redeem them, to betroth them to himself in righteousness and mercy and faithfulness. God had been preparing his people for the, the joy of this, the festival joy, festival joy of this moment. For centuries, he'd, been, he'd built various feast days into their annual calendar. He said, our relationship is going to be characterized by regular feasts, parties, festival joy, to teach them that celebration was appropriate to such moments as these in their relationship. The joy of our salvation is a festival joy, like the joy of a wedding feast. This is the moment we've all been waiting for, and it's finally come. He has finally come. The one who was long expected, the one who is faithful and true, the beloved, radiant and unique and altogether desirable, the one who would lay down his very life for love's sake, for his bride, the one who would rescue us from our own faithlessness. So when the Son of God came into the world to be with his people, what was written by Isaiah over 700 years earlier was fulfilled. Isaiah 54, this is printed there in the bulletin. <clears throat> he says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he's called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. <clears throat> but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. <clears throat> so these are promises that God made 700 years before Christ. For 700 years, God's people had fasted and prayed for that day to come when all those promises would be fulfilled, when it would come true. 700 long years like a bride waiting for her wedding day. Will it ever come? When will the wait finally be over? We can hardly stand to wait any longer. Fasting was for his presence. 
and now he's present. And the presence of Jesus meant now their hunger was satisfied. Their desire was fulfilled. Their souls were revived and refreshed. True religious fulfillment, true spiritual fulfillment, means him. means fulfillment in him. Being with him is like the arrival, finally, of that great wedding feast. It was no longer a time for fasting, but for celebration. If the faithful bridegroom had come, if he really had come, then there'd be a huge disconnect to simply continue fasting as if he hadn't. Right? If it's a time for joyful celebration, you don't fast for the sake of some ideal, some abstract piety, simply because it's a habit or a ritual that you've always observed. To do that shows you never really understood what fasting is for, and it ruins the fasting altogether. Desperate times are for fasting. Joyful times are for feasting. So if God's your husband and your relationship with him is characterized by mutual, intimate knowing, when would you fast? If that's true about him and your relationship, when would you fast? You fast when you feel his absence. And you feast when you feel his presence. Yes, he said in uh, verse 15 that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. He's talking about his bodily presence, no longer being with them. So after his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, where he is absent from us in the body, his disciples, the apostles, they felt that bodily absence and they felt their need for him desperately. So several times in the book of Acts, it says that they fasted. Yes, we believe he's alive. We find our hope in him. We know our, uh, his love for us. Uh, we're thankful for his spirit. We rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ, but we can still miss him. We can still long for the day when we see him with our eyes and still recognize that this day and that day, there's a big gap in between them. They're quite different days. <clears throat> Sometimes we desire him and we hunger and we fast. And sometimes we're filled in him and we're satisfied and we feast. Sometimes it's like the month before your wedding. It's just all yearning. And sometimes it's like the wedding day and the honeymoon, all satisfaction. To live in light of his presence, to live in reality with him, means a big change to the religious practices of his people to actually center their spiritual life on Jesus actually center their spiritual life on their relationship with him. So he continues, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. So <clears throat> a patch of new cloth that's not shrunk, you can imagine it. If you've got a hole in your garment, you stick a patch there, That old garment has already shrunk. It's already changed its size and shape, pretty much how it's going to do. The the new, when it shrinks, will tear at the seams that it makes, right? So um, a patch of new cloth doesn't match an old garment. They just don't match. They don't fit. It's not the right fit. They don't match up. New wine doesn't belong in old wineskins. Those two things don't match up. Joy doesn't correspond with times of mourning, and grieving, and desperation. Fasting is not a good fit for times of relief and comfort, 
and celebration and victory. So if you're going to live in reality with God, you'll need to respond to who he is and to what he's doing in your life. Really be responsive to him. You need to have a way to express your emotions and engage in actions that are appropriate to a real relationship with God that you have in the circumstances of your life. If you're suffering loss, if you're enduring hardship, don't just try to staple joy on top of that because you're supposed to. Trying to staple joy onto your soul in some artificial way, just because spiritual people are supposed to be joyful, that's going to make everything worse. Or if you're aware of God's blessing and and you really sense his presence with you, and you're in a time where you're satisfied and filled in him, then you're sort of patching that over with some fasting because, you know, it's like it's Wednesday and we fast on Wednesdays. Just because... That's what spiritual people do. But that ruins what was the joy of a real faith and your real relationship with him. Those things don't match up. All of our lives, all of our lives are meant to be brought into sync with our relationship with Jesus. He transforms every religious practice, every facet of our lives. Union with the bridegroom changes the very nature of everything in our lives, every spiritual practice especially. Uh, <clears throat> I was talking with my friend Josh Kim the other day. <clears throat> He's a third-generation Korean-American. He's doing the English ministry at Eden Presbyterian Church in Aloha. He's being examined for ordination in October, and hopefully you'll be able to meet him sometime. Uh, maybe we'll have like a pulpit swap or something. He's great. Uh, Josh was talking about how traditional Korean culture is largely influenced by Confucianism when it comes to family and society. So there's a lot of ways in which they... You know, have a great respect for their elders, a great respect for their ancestors, which we would say is good. But this has been distorted by Confucianism into things like ancestor worship and an honor-shame culture, right? So it's good to honor your elders, but the relational and re- religious practices of doing that, they need to be transformed through a relationship with Jesus. Just like it's good to fast... But that spiritual practice needs to be transformed by a real relationship with Jesus. So Koreans need to learn, you know, to honor their parents and their elders because God commands it. They need to do it for God's sake. Uh, They need to do it in ways that are appropriate to who God is and according to what he wants and his word. And uh, they need to do it because of their relationship with Jesus. And they need to do it in ways that are filled with the Holy Spirit. That will make their relationships with their elders new. And it'll bring an end to some aspects of those relationships, like ancestor worship. That should end. Uh, so <clears throat> hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm just ragging on another culture. Our, our culture needs every practice transformed through union with Christ and brought into a real relationship with Jesus. So in the U.S., we, we care about things like equality and individuality and identity and justice and freedom and prosperity, and happiness, and a whole bunch of other good things. These are good things. These are actually religious things. These are spiritual things. They're Christian things that we hear about from God in his word. They're aspects, they should be aspects of our life together with God. But in our culture, uh, usually these things are completely detached from the reality of Jesus, just like the religious practice of fasting was detached and needed to be brought back into relationship with Jesus and transformed by that relationship. 
So, um, believers, we can properly talk about equality, individuality, identity, justice, freedom, prosperity, happiness. Only with regard to Jesus, only for his sake, only in ways that are appropriate to who God is and what he wants. The bridegroom has come, and his coming has changed all the practices of our faith. It changes how we engage with everything at every moment in this world. So now we rest on the finished work of Christ for our reconciliation to God. This is utterly new and changes everything about all our strivings and our work. Now we know Christ's Father as our Father. And this is new, and it changes everything about our prayer. Now we know the blessing of Christ's suffering love, and we know the power and the hope of his resurrection. That is utterly new, and it changes everything about how we face our sufferings and how we have hope for the future. Now we believe that he rules over all things for the sake of his church, and this is new, and it changes everything about our sense of purpose in the world and our sense of mission in the world. Jesus is the bridegroom. Is your relationship with him the most real thing in your life? Or do you go through the religious motions because that's just what spiritual people do? It's expected. Jesus is the bridegroom. Do you think of your life in terms of abstract rituals and and morals? Or are you captivated by the beloved in his unique radiance? Jesus is the new wine. He's the point of fasting. He's the point of feasting. He's the point of everything. So may your life be a vessel of his life as a new wineskin is made from new wine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to get stuck in our hearts and minds living life as if it were detached from our relationship with you. We're sorry for that You've shown us the goodness of life that is lived in complete connection with you. We've seen this glorious life in Jesus. We thank you for him. Thank you, faithful bridegroom, for coming into the world for us. Thank you for healing our relationship in your own faithfulness. Thank you for uniting us to yourself once and for all through your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd show us how this relationship with you, a relationship with God, renovates every part of our lives. Teach us how it makes us new. Meet each one of us in the various places of our lives and make yourself the center of those places by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.